Good to see you all here and excited to be working through this uh, wonderful book, the book of Hosea. Hopefully you've been blessed by that. You can start turning with me. We're in chapter six this morning and really just been such an epic uh, love story, kind of not necessarily a a typical uh, love story of sorts. We've spent a lot of time kind of looking at this parallel between God's love for the nation of Israel and this relationship between Hosea and Gomer. Now, the parallels are, aren't necessarily ones that you're like, oh, that's, that's the ideal relationship. It's been more of a picture of like unrequited love. You remember as we've been working through this where you have Hosea who's completely committed and faithful and, and Gomer not so much, the completely or just the opposite, uncommitted and unfaithful. And yet, Without doubt, there's this commitment that Hosea has, regardless of how far Gomer has wandered, he's willing to take any step to bring her back. Last time we were together, we talked about that. And really, this is an interesting book because it kind of jumps back and forth between this real life relationship, kind of dysfunctional relationship, and with God's relationship with Israel. And sometimes you're in the text and you're like, which one or where are we at in this story? Well, we've officially moved from the specific relationship between Hosea and Gomer to God actually addressing things with the nation of Israel. So are you tracking with me? Last week, we had a chance where John spent some time where he was talking specifically about where God was confronting the role of the leaders of Israel and their part that they've played in the unfaithfulness of Israel. This week, it's moving from talking about the leaders and their unfaithfulness to talking more about the masses, the, 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 the nation as a whole, and their consistent infidelity in their relationship with God. So there's kind of a, a turn in that. And uh, so kind of talking now less about specific individuals and more about a culture and more about some trends in that culture And we use that expression pretty often still today, cultural trends, right? That's when you notice that the entire group of people is moving one particular direction. And here, what we're doing in the next five chapters is we're identifying cultural trends or kind of patterns within this society that God is confronting and saying, this is unacceptable, And so last week, John teased about the fact that he was left with two chapters uh, to cover and kind of gave me a hard time about that. This week, just to make sure that you know that your lead pastor is not leaving just the, the tough work for John, we are covering five chapters and one morning. So two verses five, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. So anyway, this idea though, uh, we're, we're spending, and um, I promise you, we're not going to read through every verse and every line. People are like, oh no, we're going to be here for a month. But uh, we're going to spend time really focusing and highlighting these different cultural trends that God's confronting with the people. And I thought rather than spend the next five weeks hitting on one trend each week, I thought you'd rather just be hit with a, this in the forehead directly uh, in one week. And so uh, that's the plan. Really, the tricky thing with cultural trends is so often in our society, it happens like in a, in a subtle way where you don't even necessarily recognize that you're like, man, it seems like this is kind of snuck up on us. Have you guys even identified that in our today's culture where you're like, man, what happened? It seems like uh, 20 years ago, things were like this and now they're like this because things kind of like a, a tide that sneaks up on somebody is how kind of the same thing with our culture 
So last week, uh, my wife and I had a, a wonderful time pulling away. On Valentine's Day was our 20th anniversary. Uh, it's getting pretty serious. And, uh, and so we took some time celebrating, and I uh, mentioned that we uh, found this killer deal on Orbitz, and we headed down to Cabo San Lucas for a week and uh, spent some time down there and did a bunch of uh, snorkeling. There's, uh, that was going to Lover's Beach, which was very fitting. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been down there. Very uh, pretty. Everybody's trying to sell you something, though. Uh, but either way, uh, we did some snorkeling along the coast. And this is the, I'm getting to a point with this, uh, some snorkeling along the coast. And they had all these really cool little coves that you could kind of go into. One particular one, as we're snorkeling along, went in and it had this little like five foot by five foot beach that you're like, oh, that looks awesome. And so Adrian went ahead of me and she snuck in and she kind of worked her way through the rocks and was sitting on this little mini beach. And we're like, oh, that looks so fun. But we didn't think through this. We didn't kind of identify the, the, the surroundings. I mean, it was kind of in this cove of rocks. All of a sudden, you know how waves work. All of a sudden, like this next surge of water started coming in. And all of a sudden, that, really that five foot by five foot beach was gone with the tide coming in. And there's that split moment. I don't know if you've had this before where you're like, uh, this could go really poorly. Like an anniversary getaway with your wife crashing against rocks. You know, that kind of spoils things. So there's this like quick panic to get rescue her, pull her out of this. And I was thinking about that. I was like, man, isn't that, uh, she lived obviously, children's ministry, you can uh, say hi to her afterwards. But isn't that really the picture of how it works with cultural trends? You're kind of sitting on your little five foot by five foot beach. You're enjoying the, 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 the breeze, the ocean air. You're doing your thing. You're doing life. And before you realize it, the culture kind of sneaks up. The tide starts to come up. The current pushes. And before you know it, you're like, man, what happened? Why am I being thrown against the rocks? Why are, why, what, what happened in my surroundings? How did they change so quickly? I would propose today... We're in the middle of this. And the challenge for us as we're trying to be a light amongst the darkness is for us to not drink all of the Kool-Aid that's being served. We have to be discerning and weed through which things from the culture are to be absorbed and which things are to be rejected. Part of that process is the ability to identify which things are of God and which things are in direct contrast to him. Well, this week in our sections of scripture, he points out things specifically that are like, no bueno. Let me pray before we explore this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be together this morning, and we thank you for your faithfulness and the blend that we get in this book of understanding both your justice and your love and mercy. I pray that through this time spent this morning, we'd have a better awareness of what is to be embraced and what is to be rejected, God, as you call out some of the things in that culture that so perfectly parallel our culture. Pray that you'd allow us to be free of distraction this morning, that you'd meet us exactly where we're at. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, so let me explain how we're going to try to do this. Basically, in each of these five chapters, I'm just going to try to identify one major theme or one thing that God is calling out, one specific cultural trend that he's addressing. Now, in the first chapter that we're looking at, chapter 6, he starts right out of the the gates with pretty awesome thing. Verses 1 through 3, we're not going to look at in this moment. We're going to look at at the end of the passage because it's an invitation to come back from these cultural trends. Are you tracking with me? So we're actually starting in verse 4 of chapter 6. It says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Let me explain something just briefly with that. Ephraim, you're like, who's Ephraim and how does that person relate? Basically, Ephraim was the most important and prominent tribe in Israel, kind of centrally located. And so he uses that term to describe the entire northern kingdom. So this is basically like him confronting or addressing Israel as a whole. So the whole chapter, when you see that word used, it's basically interchangeable with northern, the northern kingdom of Israel. Are you tracking with that? So he's saying to them, he's saying, what shall I do with you? And Judah's the southern kingdom. What shall I do with you people? It's kind of like a a parent that's trying to shepherd their wayward child. Many of us have had that experience. We're like, what in the world? This whole free will thing adds all kinds of complexity, doesn't it? Anybody else notice that? Complexity comes with free will, and that's what our God is saying. What in the world do I do with you, Israel? And he points to that. He says, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. When Adrian and I moved here from Chicago six years ago, one of the things that was took some getting used to is kind of the whole spring season where you start the day, you look outside, and it's totally cloud-covered. You're just like, oh man, in the Midwest, you're like, it's going to be a cloudy day. It's going to be a miserable day. And you're kind of set for that. And I remember when we were first arriving here, people would be like, don't worry. By like 10 a.m., it's going to blow off and it's going to be a perfectly sunny day. I'm like, you guys are crazy. That's not how it works. That's not how. And sure enough, every single time, what happens here in the spring? Starts out hazy, ends up being sunny. I'm like, what? what is, that's so strange to me. That's basically, they had the same exact climate there. He's saying, your love, Israel, is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. In other words, you start really strong. Your affection seems like it's there, but it so quickly wanes. It so quickly wanes. And what does that look like? In verse 6, he says, For I desire steadfast love. Do you see how that's the opposite instead of a waning love? He's saying, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Basically, what he's saying here is all of this human effort to follow rules and burnt offerings. He's like, that's not really what I'm wanting. I want a steadfast love. I want your affection. That's what I'm interested in with you. 
one of the cultural trends then and now that we're so quickly drawn to is this idea of law keeping and rule following. And if I check this box off, if I go to church, if I do this, if I serve with the, the poor, if I, if I pay my offering, if I do all of that mentality is just like, oh, it's fine doing those things, but don't miss the heart of what God's intent is, is a love relationship with us. Why is it that we're so drawn to that? The reason we're so drawn to this law keeping is because what? It's within our control. It's within our ability to say, I'll do this. I'll check this off. And then all of a sudden it's about me and not about the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's something about that that feeds our ego and why really apart from Christianity, all other world religions are what? Man's attempt at law keeping, following rules to appease a perfect God. Really, if I'm honest with you guys, on Sundays, even in preparation for different sermons, one of the tugs that I feel, even from this trend, is for me to get up here, tell you this is what the Bible says, and this is what you need to try harder at doing. See, that's what I feel tugged towards. But that's not what Scripture calls us to. It's not about trying harder. It's about drawing closer. It's about clinging tighter, drawing to him, and he does the transformation in your life. Do you see the difference? It comes out of relationship rather than duty, one of the cultural trends that we have to resist the tug from. Chapter 7 points to another trend, the word syncretism. Syncretism, by definition, here's the definition of syncretism is something I learned in my study this last week. Attempted fusion of different religions, cultures, or philosophies. This idea is this. Syncretism is the idea of what Israel is doing, is trying to take some of the world and some of the things of God and find some kind of a middle ground where the two might meet and fuse and work together. That, my friends, is another cultural trend trying to take kind of the best of, and maybe by introducing a middle ground between the two, that brings us strength. Verse 8, chapter 7. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. He's pointed to this fusion idea. He's trying to mix with his surroundings with the people and absorb that. And he says he's, he's like a cake not turned. Kind of an interesting statement there. When uh, Adrian and I were in Israel in January, uh, one, of the, one of the fun things, we got to visit this little village that kind of reenacted some of the things of kind of traditional daily life uh, in Israel in that time. And we got introduced to kind of what it looked like to make bread. And so we had to kind of roll out the dough. And they basically, they showed us how they'd take like this upside down kettle over top of a fire. And on that, you would lay your piece of bread or cake bread on top of that. And kind of the same thing what we do with pancakes is you got one side that you spend some time getting that warm. And then what? You flip it over and on the other side, it gets cooked. The opposite of that is what he's pointing to. He says, it's like a cake not turned. Kind of doughy and gross on one side and kind of burnt on the other side. He's like, it, it doesn't work. He's saying this idea of trying to blend the world, one foot on this wor in the world and one foot following the Lord. He's saying, oh, it just doesn't work. 
Basically, that's the description that he says of this syncretism of trying to mix both worlds. In the next verse, he goes on. He uses another analogy. He says, strangers, because he's mixing with these strangers, devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. It's a funny expression, isn't it? Kind of the, this, this picture, anytime it's talking about uh, uh, gray hairs, I kind of perk up with that. But uh, the idea, he's saying by trying to mix the two worlds together, he's like, it's kind of here, if we're going to bring it to today's analogy, it's kind of like a 40-year-old trying to play pickup basketball. The reason I can relate with that, this is uh, something I can, I, I can speak to. And, and you think about that, that doesn't end well. The reason it doesn't, well, just on Friday, in fact, I was at the knee specialist. They think that I have a torn meniscus and need surgery. And you're like, oh, well, that's from trying to be, pretend like you're young when the gray hairs are coming. He's saying it just doesn't work. The two worlds don't blend together. It's assessing that. Aren't the 40s the worst? We'll take a pause for a second. Aren't the 40s the worst? Honestly, like you don't have the strength of your 20s. Like you don't have any of that. You don't have the wisdom of your of the 60s or 70s. You're just kind of stuck in no man's land. There's no upside. Sorry, that's just a little... Uh, okay, back on track. Here's the idea here. Is the church really, if you think about it, has made the same exact mistake. It's thought to itself, present day church, it's thought to itself. You know, we can kind of take the, the best of the world and the best of church. We'll kind of push off the parts of scripture that are unpopular. We'll focus more on the grace piece and we'll kind of skip the justice piece and aspects of who God is and find some kind of a blend that's a little bit more palatable. And what has that left the church with? It's left the church with self-help messages and man-made prescriptions and taken all of the strength from it. That's syncretism. We're guilty of it as a culture. We're guilty of it as the church as well. It's a dangerous thing for us to, as a people, to try to find some kind of things from the world that we embrace and very little that we reject. I jotted down a list of some of the things that I would suggest are things that we're in danger of embracing as a present-day believer here in our world now. How about this one? First one, ignoring guidelines for purity. Ignoring guidelines for purity. All the warnings in Scripture, but we're going to blaze our own trail as far as it relates to purity. No boundaries on entertainment. Just letting ourselves see, hear, and embrace anything and everything that's out there. Self-medicating with substances. Being okay just chasing the almighty dollar. Finding, how about this one? Finding our hope in political figures. Hmm. Permission to hold grudges. All of these things from the world around us that they've embraced, we're saying, you know what, maybe we can find room for those in our existence and they just don't fit. Those are cultural trends that we have to be aware of. Continuing in chapter 8, another cultural trend, self-sufficiency. Take a look at verse 4. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own 
destruction. Do you see how he's pointing to this idea of basically just, they acted independent of me. They didn't include me in the process of choosing their leaders, their princes. Then they even took the things that they built and started making idols out of them for their own, that's pointing to their own destruction. The basically this idea, and we're dripping in it as a culture today, is I can do this on my own. I can build my own kingdom and even worship the things that I've built. The mentality of the American dream is basically alive and well back even back then. We've done something kind of fun with the kids as we've started introducing them to some of the movies that I liked growing up. That's fun as an adult. And so uh, I was always into the Rocky movies. I'll be honest with you, like the idea of the underdog kind of fighting his way to the top. And so we started watching some of these. And you notice the difference if you've watched some of the Rocky movies before, the difference between Rocky 1 and Rocky 3. Difference between Rocky 1 is this guy's just coming off the street. He's, he's coming and he's putting in the work. He's trying to do everything he can to not look like, a, like an idiot in the ring for this fight. He's taking counsel. He's getting input. He's receiving. He's fully dependent on others. By Rocky Three, he's already got the title. He took out Carl Weathers like he's done all right. And now all of a sudden, there's no longer the need for Mick. You know, there's no longer the need for coaching. He's able to do it all on his, on his own until he connects with Mr. T, right? Uh, you guys are like, what are we doing here in church? But here's the, the, the idea. Here, here's the idea is this, is we're so quickly swept up in this self-sufficiency thing, and I would say more often than not, there's a direct link between self-sufficiency and career and financial success. Isn't that so true? So often when the things are rocking and rolling, when you're, when you're doing well, when the finances are right, when the bank account's okay and the career is secure, all of a sudden you start thinking, you know, I've got this. That's such a danger. That's one of the things I, I loved about some of our time spent in Kenya in years past is when they have an 87% unemployment rate, all of a sudden the prayer that they pray, give us this day our daily bread, that all of a sudden has some substance to it, right? It actually means something. Self-sufficiency is the direction that our culture wants to tug us that's directly so often linked to success. Again, it's something that we have to resist and push back against. In chapter 9, continuing with that, the ultimate expression of self-sufficiency is the rejection of God in a culture. It's really one of the final cultural trends before judgment. Chapter 9, verse 7 says this, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Because of your great iniquity and great hatred. See what it's saying there? In that culture, in that day, in that time, all of a sudden, the, the culture has concluded that the, the prophet is, is mad, is crazy. And the, all of a sudden, he's saying the, the man the, the, of the spirit is, is crazy. The prophet is, uh, the prophet is a fool. Isn't that a bit of our culture as well? All of a sudden, the idea of one God, a creator, is rejected, and that opposes science. You see, what I would suggest, you're like, well, how do we respond to that trend? 
one of the negative ways that we respond to that trend is we respond to that trend by saying, yeah, I'm going to kind of be more quiet about my faith. We almost start to buy into it ourselves. We start to believe it. All of a sudden, it's evidence in our actions, the way that we're hesitant to talk about our almighty God or the idea of a creator, the idea of uh, all of this coming from our God. All of a sudden, we get silent. All of a sudden, we're timid and afraid. This trend happens in our culture still present day. Chapter 9, verse 12, he says, Woe to them when I depart from them. Verse 15, because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. See, there's kind of a reciprocal thing. As the people reject God, you see kind of the turn of that where he says, well, if you reject me, what will it look like when I reject you? This is the part of scripture that people aren't real comfortable with. This whole idea of a justice coming from God, right? People are like, I feel uncomfortable with that idea, the idea of a a just God. But think for a moment with me about the alternative to that. What's the alternative of a God that is just, of a God that, that actually inputs consequence to action? What's the opposite of that? Could we really embrace and worship a God that looks past all of the things happening in our world? Would we be okay with a God that just sees like kids being sold into slavery? Yeah, that's all right. You know, we're just going to let that pass. Would we be okay with the, a God that looks past uh, uh, the uh, excess yet starvation in our, in our planet, the mistreatment of people based on skin color? Are we okay with looking past the murder of the, uh, of the innocent? Are we okay with a God that's, you know what, it's okay. It's okay. Just do what you want. There's no consequence. Or is there something inside of us that screams for justice? My son Chase, uh, a couple weeks ago, had a birthday party and decided uh, for uh, his birthday party, wanted to do a, a Nerf war. And, uh, and so basically he and his buddies, we had about a dozen of them, very church-like, right? Uh, where they met here on the church campus. Uh, it's, the, it's the cheap birthday party. And uh, brought all their Nerf guns and were running around shooting each other. You know, what, what kids love to do and, you know, setting good examples for our kids. And, uh, and so they're running around as interesting in the middle of this Nerf uh, gun thing that they are doing and they're shooting each other. You're supposed to be, when you get hit, you're out for that game. That's what makes it fair. Well, one of the kids comes up to me because I was kind of playing kind of the, the game coordinator slash uh, referee or of whatnot. This kid comes up to me with complete panic in his eyes. He's like, Pastor Scott, there's kids out there that are getting hit and then not admitting it and continuing to play the game. And he's like, Pastor Scott, you have, there's like panic in his tone. He's like, Pastor Scott, you have to do something. You have to do something to stop this tyranny. Like the, the, the urgency in this kid, I'm like, dude, we're just playing like Nerf guns. Like, like it's okay. It's going to be all right. I'm kind of calming him. And Chase was okay after we talked for a minute. And uh, uh, I'm just kidding. But uh, as we're processing this, I'm like, man, if we get worked up and screaming for justice in Nerf games, what about all the injustice that we're surrounded with? All of a sudden, you're like, maybe I do want a just God. 
Maybe I do want a fair judge, someone that's actually holding people accountable for their actions, holding people accountable for the rejection of God. One of the cultural trends for sure that we're drawn to as a nation. Now the very last one in chapter 10 I want to point out, and you notice kind of a progression as this downward spiral continues. Chapter 10, verse 3, it says, For now, you see that on the progression, for now they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what would he do for us? It's an interesting statement. If you know a little bit about the nation of Israel, we've spent time studying what was the one thing that the, that the nation of Israel desperately cried out for. What did they want? Give us a king. We want a king. Now, what, what has happened? What has happened to the, the people that were crying out for a king? They've moved so far towards individualism, individualism, that all of a sudden the idea of a king, what would we need with a king? What would we do with a king? We're to the place of such self-sufficiency. We don't even need a king or judge. Why? Because we've put ourselves on the throne. We're wearing the crown. And you think about that for a moment. Isn't that the trend of our culture? The drunk on individualism. And I'm not saying here that we're not all unique and created in, as individuals and God designed us perfectly. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an awesome thing. But all of a sudden, when you get to the place where you're thinking, you know what? It's all about me and my thoughts and my decisions. You think about that as a culture. We are drunk on individualism. We're so drunk on individual. Think of some of the ways that it plays out in our culture. Think about this. And my, forgive me if some of this is offensive. Can I say that for a moment? Forgive me if some of the... We're so drunk on individualism. We're so drunk on it. We're willing to say that truth is relative. Kind of what, what I believe to be true, that's true for me. What you believe to be... Are you kidding me? Like, how crazy does someone have to be to think that they get to determine truth for themselves? So that's one of the ways. How about this? How drunk on individualism do you have to be that you're at the place where you believe you get to determine your own gender? Really? Like completely ignoring biology. Talk about the ultimate expression of putting yourself on a throne to say that you're going to decide this for yourself, completely ignoring that there is a creator, a designer. So drunk on individualism that we think that we can determine life or death of a baby based on convenience, whether it's comfortable, whether it's a good timing in our life, whether it's the right exact situation for you to bring them into. Talk about individualism gone awry. That's where we're at as a culture. And for us, this isn't a, a message of like, yeah, you're right. You should condemn those things. It's just saying, man, just don't drink the Kool-Aid. Just don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't embrace, don't absorb that in your thought process. It's not for us to condemn a world that's drunk on individualism. It's to present the hope of rescue of Jesus Christ, the one that should be on the throne, the one that should be making those decisions. 
And before we're too quick to condemn as far as it relates to this individualism, you know how it plays out in the church? You know how it plays out in the church? A word that we're maybe familiar with, consumerism. Consumerism. You know what? Church, this is all about me. This is, this is all about my needs. It's an exchange of religious goods and services. If I'm content with what they're providing, all right, I'll come back. If I'm discontent, I'm done with it. No degree of accountability, no degree of connection. It's broken. Even within the church, the culture has snuck its way in with individualism. We're drunk on it as well. It's really heartbreaking if you think about it. I was reading an article about a, a church that was uh, kind of responding to this, and I'm not saying this is the right way to respond, but this is how the church chose to respond. They looked up kind of the people that are in the church, and they saw the people that were uninvolved in serving, people that weren't connected to any degree in community or in relationships, that they had no pattern or, 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 or no background in giving back to the church financially or through service. They ended up writing letters to those individuals and asking them if they wouldn't mind stopping coming to the church so they could free up chairs for people that were interested in being the church. Whoa, can you imagine getting that, that letter in the mail? You're like, wait a second, what, what, what's happening here? What, what's going on? And I, I think that's maybe missing some of the grace piece and kind of the, the, the pattern of sanctification where God's in charge of the timing of people, you know, they're, they're shaping and all that. For sure, I'm not saying that. But I think they are on to a little something where they're calling out a cultural trend that's sneaking into the church. That's one of our reasons why we put this established class and you're like, oh, just another thing they're doing. We're like, no, that's not another thing. It's an opportunity to move people from being on the sidelines to actually engaging, getting people on the same page spiritually, making sure people are moving all consistently in the same direction. So in all of this, you're like, Pastor Scott, this is a pretty negative message again uh, here uh, that I've shown up to hear. I've been hitting the forehead like 19 times. Well, here's a little bit of uh, some kind of hope on the other end of this. I mentioned at the beginning, at the very beginning of chapter 6, before he started all of these rebukes, before he started with all of these confrontations of a cultural trends. And for us, my hope is it's not a rebuke, it's more of a just caution. Hey, notice this in the world and say, you know what, I, I'm not taking that in. That's not going to be me. I'm not going to be defined by my culture. But what he says in chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, is really a beautiful picture. He says, come. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Look at what that's pointing to. That we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Any relevance to that passage? Anybody notice that? Do you say, listen, he, he's broken us with the intent of drawing us back to him. What does he want us to do? Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. When we do that, he will respond like the spring rains. 
One of the things, uh, as all of you have experienced, have noticed kind of the trend here with the spring rains. You remember back in the uh, November, December, I guess it was in December after kind of the, all of the, the fires. You remember just walking around here. Here's a picture of uh, just some of the, the wreckage there. And I, Chad, I stole this from your Facebook, sorry. Uh, and so uh, just kind of the, 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 burnt, uh, the burnt horizon. And anybody remember thinking to yourself when you saw all of that, you're just like, is it ever going to look the same? Is it ever going to come back to life? Like, is this just our new, like, are we, is it like we're living on Mars now? You know, like just with charred land all around us. Is that our new existence? And then what's happened? You know, just a little bit of water. God's just poured a, a little bit of water and, and all of a sudden you go back to these same areas and, and it's all of a sudden full of, of life. It's green. It's, a, it's alive. It's, it's vibrant. Now, this last picture, I just absolutely love that. I, I think that might have been from you guys. And uh, just looking at that picture and you're like, man, that's what our God invites us to. He's like, all these cultural trends just lead to death and misery and an existence that you don't want. He's saying, come back to me. I'm the one that makes it look like this. I'm the one that brings the spring, to, uh, spring rain. I'm the one that is as sure as the sunrise. Has there been a day that the, the sun hasn't risen like in your existence? Like, no, no. he's like, I, I'm a constant. I will respond to this. This is the other side of compromise. And I love that it's constantly an invite for us to come back. Come to him. He's like, I want to make your life full. I, I came so that you'd have abundant life. That's what he invites us to. It's the opposite of where our culture is taking us. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this text and this invitation, this picture that you paint the warnings that you give, they're not gentle, they're intense. The consequences are real. The ramification of actions, sometimes you still allow to play themselves out, but the invite back is always constantly there. We thank you for that. God, I pray that we'd be a discerning church family, that we'd have eyes to see the difference between what can be embraced and what should be rejected in our culture. Not so that we can sit on a high horse and condemn, but though we can throw the same rescue rope out to people that we've experienced ourselves for them as well. To be rescued, that, we can be, that they can be revived with the spring rain as well. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your justice. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen song does such a great job of capturing the invitation to raise the white flag. I'm, I'm done with self. I'm done with heading the direction of the culture. I'm coming to him. That's the invite here this morning. If that's never been a decision that you've made even uh, as, a, as a starting point, man, I'd love to talk with you about uh, after that after the service, about what a relationship with Jesus Christ can look like. If there's something specific we can be praying for, we have a couple volunteers here after the service as well. And I look forward to seeing you on Tuesday night at our class, all right? All right, God bless you.